Beer versus Wine with Sam Calagione and Marnie Old. Welcome to Craft Beer Radio's coverage of the Great American Beer Festival's Beer versus Wine talk, given by Sam Calagione and Marnie Old. This demonstration was given during the Thursday night session at the Beer and Food Pavilion and features Sam and Marnie selecting three beers and three wines to go head-to-head against each other, paired with some fine cheeses. I'm here from a much more staid industry. I'm, I'm more often in the wine side of it than the beer side of it, and I am amazed. When you, amazed. Go, to, when, when you go to a wine festival and someone drops through a glass, do people go, Wahoo! No, actually that isn't usually what happens, but it's because we're worried somebody dumped the spit bucket, Sam. So in any case, first off, I'd like to introduce my compatriot here, Sam Calagione, in case you haven't heard of him. This guy's a rock star in your business, right? Sam, why don't you, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Uh, uh, Doug Pichette, our brewery opened in 1995, and uh, yeah, oh yeah. And we, uh, we were the smallest brewery in the country when we opened, and our goal since the day we opened was to brew off-centered ales for off-centered people. And we always try to promote our beers in the context of how well they paired with food. And we would go into white tablecloth restaurants, and they would have a wine list that was like 200 bottles long, and then they would have like Heineken, Coors, Bud, and you know maybe Yingling if it was in the Mid-Atlantic. And I say we have we have every kind of beer we need, and those were hard times. And uh, we made it through those hard times, and those same white tablecloth restaurants are starting to come around, you know this, you know this, to serving a, a, a better breadth of beer styles. And uh, Marty and I have uh, worked together for about six years uh, doing beer dinners, beer versus wine dinners. Uh, she is uh, a wine expert uh, without, with, without, without parallel. And, but more than that, even though we'll, we'll bicker a little bit today, she knows her shit when it comes to beer as well. So, Marty, tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Thank you, Sam. And, and before I talk about myself, I just want to let you know, the food that's coming around, we are going to send you two beverages to go with each food, so don't eat it yet, okay? You've got a couple bites. You've got a couple bites of cheese. You're going to have a beer come around first. You want to try the cheese with the beer. A wine's going to come around next. You're going to try the wine with the cheese and make up your own mind about which one you think is the better partner. Now, Sam and I have been doing these beer versus wine, or originally it was beer is from Mars, wine is from Venus dinner around the country for a number of years now. And I, I have to confess, I'm on the wine side of that argument. I know I'm in the wrong place, in the wrong town for that right now, I do do beer stuff on the side as well. It's just that for my taste, for my style, I tend to be more likely to open up for wine. But I do drink beer quite often, right? I actually teach about wine at the French Culinary Institute. I spent years as a sommelier in top fine dining restaurants. Now I work as a consultant. As a, I do wine, corporate entertaining. I teach about wine and beer all over the place. And so when Sam and I got this crazy idea to start doing this touring show, It was so much fun. We got so much attendance. And the best part about these events, let me tell you something, and I'm saying this from the position of the wine expert here, the best thing about our events is that they're almost always neck in neck, okay? 
There's no need for anybody to be hating anybody. It's all about the love, people. Beer and wine are closer to each other than they are different, right? They're just fermented beverages. I mean, what was it that Benjamin Franklin said? Both beer and wine are proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy, right? True story, true story. Exactly. So, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a little taste of what you would get if you came to a Marnie and Sam dinner. And first off, Sam's going to tell you about his pairing to go with the farmhouse cheddar. Right. So, let's get let's get one thing straight here. Uh, complicated and complex. There's a gigantic difference between complicated and complex. Wine is complicated. They got Tawar and Appalachians and all this crazy nomenclature that is meant to confuse the consumer and, and and pound you into spending more money than you should for the liquid that you're having with your dinner. That's complicated. Beer is complex. And it really starts from ingredients. You don't have to be a, a, a rocket surgeon to know that a beverage made from one ingredient, wine, cannot be as complex as a beverage made from four ingredients, right? Wine kind of stumbles awkwardly on one ingredient, you know, great, the great, the great. Whereas beer struts, sexy, sexy struts, like hops, yes. barley, yeast, water, sure, hops, it's sexy. Whereas wine, it's clumsy, it's kind of clumsy. So there's that, there's that. Now, with our first tasting, we're not getting too weird. We're doing our 90 minute IPA which is a rare thing for our brewery, right? Let's come out beer, made with only the four normal ingredients. Water, yeast, hops, and barley. Things might get a little weird later, uh, but for now, to, to take it easy on Barney, we're gonna ease everybody into this. And when you're having, when you're having cheeses, the most uh, significant flavor-forward components of almost every cheese are salt and fat. Fat coats your palate, right? Beer is really like a palate exfoliant. It's like a lupa. It's a lupa that rubs your tongue. Because it's carbonated, you drink it, your tongue is decoded, and you're ready to drink again. Wine can't do that. Wine is like, it bounces off your tongue when you have a, a fatty food. So do you have documentary not, evidence of this, Sam? I'd like to see this bouncing of which you speak. This is very scientific, buddy. This is very scientific. So what you'll notice when you drink, when you eat your cheese and you drink your 90 is, boom, your palate gets cleansed and looks forward to the next taste of beer. With, with the wine, it just kind of bounces off of it. What do you have to say about that? Well, I have a couple things to say. First off, the fact that wine only needs one ingredient really is more a sign that that one ingredient is so much more layered and complex and delightful. It doesn't need any seasoning. There's no need for a human component in that recipe. It's Mother Nature speaking to us through the grape, through the wine. And there's also something else you're missing here about wine, Sam. You you guys on the brew world, you, you have a tendency to judge everything based on first impressions. You know, you take a sip of the beer, you We're wicked decide. shallow. We're wicked shallow. <laughs> you are shallow, Sam. And you're a shallow dog. But we love you anyway. And uh, the real problem is here. You, you got to understand this. Wine 
was never made originally to taste great on first impression. It was designed to be a sauce on the side, to be a food partner. And there is a component in wine that exists in very few beers. It's called acidity. It comes from the natural tart, sweet tart taste of fresh grapes. And that acidity is the absolute central key to the terrific marriage of wine and food. Because if anybody here remembers their uh, high school chemistry, I'm sure that wouldn't be Sam here, but if anybody does remember, there are two ends to the pH scale, right? You've got acid and base. Bases are salts. Anything that has salt has a natural synergy with acidic beverages. Not with malty beverages, not with herbal beverages, but with acidic beverages. And if you've ever had that moment where your wine wasn't so exciting until you took a bite of your appetizer, a bite of your pasta, a bite of your steak, and got to the wine and went, ah, this is what it's all about, then you know what I'm talking about. The reality is that wine comes around after IPA, you're going to get more refreshment, you're going to get more snap and tang, a cleansing effect, an opposing effect that balances out the salty, fatty nature of this sharp cheese. And personally, I chose a rosé style. You went IPA, I went on to the lighter side because I wanted something cleansing to start out with. What we have is sort of like the best of both worlds, a little bit of white wine style, a little bit of red wine style, just enough skin contact to add flavor, but with that ice cold, long, slow fermentation of white wine that keeps it snappy and refreshing. Acidity is really the wine world's word for bitterness because they don't have hops. And we have hops, we have hops. And so when you say acidity, really, we, we, we process that as dryness in all of our palates, whether we're wine people or beer people. But again, clumsy. It comes through the grapes. It comes through tannins, I believe. There's a certain component of that. But we get ours through an ingredient, which is hops, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous Which, if we wanted to add hops to wine, we right. could, Sam. You do know that. If we added anything to wine, we right. would add it. Well, uh, you guys need to start looking at adding other ingredients because grapes alone isn't cutting it. And uh, so it's, it's both the beverages around with our first I think course. they're just trying their IPA now, so the wine should be coming hey. around. I see it in the people's hands Excellent right now. choice. Excellent choice. So when I teach about wine and food, the reality is that historically, before the modern era, before the last hundred years, the beverage that was considered to be the best food partner was always wine. And that, that wasn't something about personal preference. That was just the way the world of beverages was oriented. Back in the day, beer had kind of modest roots. I mean, certainly there are some noble beers that have been brewed for hundreds of years, but they were by far the exception, not the rule. Whereas wine always, since the beginning of time, I mean, you can go back to ancient Sumeria, you can go back to Mesopotamia, any place where they couldn't make wine, they were importing it. And if you could afford it, you were drinking the wine instead of the beer. As a matter of fact, I think Sam occasionally resorts to this himself by using ingredients like muscat grapes and raisins in his brews. She's making some excellent points. And I think it's wonderful that we're talking about the history of beverages. The oldest known evidence physical evidence of wine is 5500 BC in Iran. 
The oldest known evidence of a grain-based fermented beverage is 9,000 years old in China. Chateau Jiahu, our beer, is uh, based on evidence found in a tomb in China. Very significant finding. The oldest known physical evidence of a fermented beverage, A, that tomb also ho hosted the oldest known musical instrument evidence. So these people were having a fucking hoot nanny, right? They were, they were drinking, they were playing their instrument, they were having a gorgeous time. And if you look at that era, in 9,000 years ago, essentially historians recognize this as the birth of civilization. Because we were all a bunch of hunting and gathering uh, hair-covered freaks back then. And, and then one year, we saw that some barley that sat around a, in a puddle naturally fermented, and some crazy, uh, brave freak decided to drink that puddle and saw God and was like, woo! And said, you know what? Instead of hunting and gathering, I'm going to stick around and, and grow some barley. And that was the first village. And so, in essence, beer is responsible for civilization. What do you have to say to that? Well, I don't argue the fact that beer has a longer history, Sam, but on the female side of this fence, yep. it's always been quality, not quantity, that matters. And the reality is that the fact that beer came first just kind of proves my point that it's more primitive, right? And that it took a little bit more experience, it took a little bit more development, it took a little bit more learning and sophistication before people were ready to make wine. The reality Baby is, Baby from the moment that wine was available, people who have a choice have chosen wine. And that's a difficult argument to get around. It's especially difficult when you look at the volume of beer drunk in America versus the volume of wine. It's really difficult. It's really difficult. But go ahead, go ahead. You're making good points. You're making solid Aww. points. Oh, that's all right. Well, I think that most people have gotten a chance to try both beverages now. So have you guys gotten wine and beer? No? What are you waiting on? Oh, oh we'll give them a minute. They're still wine. waiting for wine. Yeah. So, yeah. that's okay. That happens because beer is a lot more accessible and that happens. But that's okay. We'll wait. We'll wait. We'll wait. You know, by Sam's argument, Ronald McDonald would trump Jack Pepin. You know, easy, accessible, you know, fun guy. Great party. Wonder if they're cheering for one. I wonder if they're cheering for one. I don't know. I don't know, Tom. What do you think? I think Sam's just getting revenge on me from the last event that we did at a festival, which was at the Pittsburgh Wine yeah. Festival. She so, brought me to the Pittsburgh Wine Festival. That was like bringing a knife to a gunfight. It was bad. <laughs> it was bad. You didn't do bad, Sam. You did well. And actually, that brings up a point, because even at a wine festival, what we found was that when people voted their honest instincts, the reality is that there was not a single wine drinker in that room who didn't vote for at least one beer. And even when we go to the most diehard of beer restaurants with Sam and his crew, she we, at least three courses. we always find some diehard hopheads who vote for at least one wine, right? Because the reality is that these products are closer than we recognize most of the time in the business. We, you know, sit here and throw rocks at each other, but really we love each other. You know, we do. Behind closed doors. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so now what's going out? Is it, is it still the, uh... We have the 
Two cheeses going out next. Okay. Did, uh, did you guys uh, head the cheddar get to have the wine yet? That's still Looks like that out. way. Okay. There's Jim. Dogfish head. Jim Boyd bringing around the beer. Terrific. Jim, are those space pants? Because your ass is out of this world. <laughs> it's really nice. All right, so now we're moving on to blue cheese, or should we? Well, we can, if we think everybody's had the wine, which it looks like it's getting into the back corner there. Good, good, good. Maybe we can say, look for a show of hands. You want to try that? I I don't know how honest people are going to be with that anonymous ballot. I think I'm going to, you know, volunteer for the old paratiri here. But be honest. (laughs) I remember what festival you're at, but be honest. It's okay to raise your hand today is really what I'm saying. Okay, so on our first food item, which is our farmhouse cheddar. Let's see a show of hands for who prefers the 90-minute IPA. Woo! That's Check weird. it out. That's Good weird. Room. Good That's room. weird. That's weird. And then who enjoyed the wine, the Tuscan Rosé? Oh, good. All we right. got a few of those right. hands, too. Yeah. Few. Now, this is You're about freaks. the lowest. <laughs> but okay, whatever. <laughs> this is just goes to show you that even when you're at a wine event or even if you're at a beer event, there's always a few people who are willing to cross that line when they have an open mind. Open mind. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. When we do this, as I said, she knows pretty much as much about beer as she knows about wine. And at the end of the day, while we have a lot of fun at each other's expense, it's about turning wine people on to good beer and turning beer people on to good wine. And you guys would be amazed. You probably wouldn't be amazed. You know, I, I have to make Sam here. do this. Every now and then people try and tell me that Sam doesn't like wine. And then I tell them what Sam's given name is. Can you repeat that in front of a large audience? Are we yeah. allowed to do that? Yes. Antonio Mastriani Caligioni third. You think his family drinks some wine maybe? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an true. Italian family it's true. here, right? It's true. And then on my end of it, I teach wine classes at the French Culinary Institute in Manhattan, one of the top two culinary schools in the country. But let me tell you something, I also pushed them to add a beer to their curriculum, and we're teaching that for the first time this year. Baby steps. Baby steps. I like it. But talking, let's talk about regionality for a moment, while the next course is going out. What we have to remember as we look around this room, this gigantic room, at the amazing diversity of the beers in this room is it's not geographically specific. Every area in our country makes beautiful, beautiful beers. And that's because beer is a man-made thing, right? And you have access to the world's best ingredients, whether you're in Idaho or Indiana or New York or California. Unlike the wine industry, where there's just a few chosen areas that have wonderful terroir that can make wonderful wine. That's not very democratic. How, how do you how do you rationalize well, Sam, a national never beverage? Never been about democracy. No. The reality is it's you're, you're talking about print. something being man-made. Like that's a plus. I mean, come on, people. Let's think about this for a second. Imagine the most beautiful piece of art that you ever saw. You could have gone to a museum in Paris. Maybe you checked out architecture. I don't know. Maybe you're into dance instead of figurative drawing. I don't know. But does any of it compare to the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen? No, it can't. 
because man does not make the most beautiful things on earth. Mother Nature does, the earth does, and that is unfortunately what handcuffs us in making wine. There are certain regions Walt, of the world Walt, that Walt have Whitman tremendous would potential. Disagree. Walt Whitman would disagree. <laughs> Jack Kerouac would disagree. Emerson would disagree. The reason this country started was because people were like, religion, you're going to tell me what I have to do? Fuck that. I'm getting on a boat. I'm going someplace where men make the decision. Men and women. But not, nobody has ever been forced to make wine, Sam. It's a choice. Okay. People are choosing to make wine. And generally, if they're in a region where they can plant fruit trees, where they can grow grapes, they're not growing barley and they're not growing hops, even though they could. They will overwhelmingly choose to plant ingredient that gives them the best raw material to make the best, absolutely you, most complex, most outstanding fermented beverage on earth. Snob is a four-letter word. Snob is a four-letter word. Wine, wine is a five-letter word when you spell it the way she does with an H. W-H-I-N-E. Wine is about which beverage is better. But go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. That's okay, Sam. I actually think it's time to talk about the next cheese that's coming around, because okay. I think most people have had a chance to put the blue nice. cheese in nice. your mouth, or if not, your beer is approaching and you're almost ready to do so. And let's just be honest here. We talked about how salt and fat are the intense elements that make cheese so special and so distinctive when it comes to food pairing. True that. Well, in blue cheese, you have more salt and more fat than in almost any other kind of cheese there is. I mean, can you make a more potent cheese than artisanal raw milk blue cheese? I mean, no, this stuff is, it sends your palate to the moon. I mean, this is a home run. Incredible intensity and pungency. And uh, I think, Sam, you have something to say about the beer that's going out around now, the Immortal? Yeah. Immortal, our, our beer that you're getting with this uh, uh, cheese course was uh, one of our first beers we brewed in 1996. Uh, we started brewing this. And I remember putting on tap, and it's made with uh, maple syrup from my dad's farm in western Massachusetts. Peat smoked barley, vanilla beans. I remember putting on tap for the first time in 96, and we had, uh, we had uh, customer surveys. I remember sitting at the bar at the end of the night and drinking those, or while I was drinking them, reading those customer surveys. And the first one we got back said, it tastes like wood, but it got me fucked up. <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, that's not exactly what we're going for, but he has a point. And that's a great reminder of how far the beer industry has come since 96. In the last, what is that, 11 years, if you look at the explosion of full-flavored beers that are more wine-like in their alcohol content, more wine-like in their food friendliness. Did you say wine-like? Yeah. As That's a not a dirty word. For beer? That's not a dirty word. It doesn't mean that they are wines. They're wine-like in oh, alcohol. Oh, okay, content. okay. So beer aspires to be wine-like and yet is somehow superior to wine? Oh my god, you get it. You totally get it. That's awesome. So this one, maple syrup, vanilla beans, peat smoked barley. You're going to love it. Go ahead. Go ahead, Marty. Well, I, I find it interesting that this wood-flavored beer is such a revelation because, you know, in the wine business, we kind of been doing that for a long time. Not right? as long as beer. Okay. But go ahead. 
the reality is that wood has used to be the only container there was. You know, before we had stainless steel and shrink wrap and tin cans and all of that, we were storing everything in wood barrels. It could be molasses or horseshoes or oranges or rope, and it came in a barrel, right? Yep. The difference is that the barrels you guys were using for brewing beer were the leftovers from the horseshoes and the right the right. stuff that had been used for something else was being recycled. Right. In the wine we're business, we're so green that way. We're so green that way. In but the wine ahead. business, we have always known which woods to use, which forests to use, how to make the barrel, how to toast the barrel, and how to age the wine or ferment the wine in the wood to improve its flavor without the wood being the primary taste. Right. It's not about wood. I mean, when you walk up to the buffet and there's grapes and wood chips, you don't eat the wood chips, right? It's using the wood as an accent, as a seasoning, as a seasoning agent, sort of like the way a chef would use salt and pepper. But in the wine business, this has been one of the common threads. Most of the world's finest wines are accented with the flavor of oak and oxidation, not just a couple specialties. This is true. Instead of like beating you up as a response, I'm looking out at my boy, Michael Jackson, with the globe, the globe below him. And, and we all know that we recently lost Michael, what an amazing guy he was. Get some perspective from uh, the wine world, which is their, their patriarch uh, is, is Parker. And uh, Parker is a militant, uh, uh, control freak dude who, who bent in the wine world in, in, in the direction he wanted to go to and, and forced vineyards to reckon with his palate to make what they wanted. Whereas our patriarch was just like, let your freak fag fly, brew whatever you want, and if it's gorgeous, people will love it. That's our patriarch. That's our but patriarch. I give you credit for that, and I'll tell you, the wine world does have a serious problem. Um, I'm not here to say that wine people, or wine snobs, or magazines, or wine reviewers are better than beer. I, I don't want to say that because it's not true. That's cool. What I'm saying is that as a food partner evaluated on even terms, even if you take out the factor of price and throw it out completely, or keep it in, doesn't matter which way you want to do it, I think that wine still has an edge over beer as a food partner. As a sommelier with, you know, 15 years fine dining experience, maybe I'm a little biased that way. That's not so But cool. what I do want to say, though, is that the real problem in the wine business that has allowed people like Parker and magazines like The Spectator to get to that position of power isn't about the wine. It's about people's insecurity in buying wine. It's the fact that people have turned wine into a source of stress instead of a stress reliever. It's about the fact that people have now, especially in the United States, which is really pathetic, have turned wine into a social stick instead of a beverage to be enjoyed over dinner with friends and family. And the fact that all of these guys are sitting on expensive collections, sitting on expensive collections of wines they don't intend to drink, really, frankly, pisses me off. Amen. Because it Amen. means there's less
less for me and less for you and less for all of the people who would actually enjoy it and appreciate it in the moment rather than treating it as a collector's item or as a liquid asset. Wine people are losers. I love it. I love it. Uh, but it is kind of cool when you think about it to uh, to be the like the 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 big swinging dick of the wine world. Excuse my language, but you have to fly in your personal jet to a auction at Copa or at uh, in Napa or no in Naples is one of the big auctions, and and you bid on a bottle of wine, and it can get into. I believe six digits for that bottle. Yeah. And it's all about, you know. Okay, okay, okay. Sam, I, I know where you're going with oh, this. Oh, you know where I'm going? Let me tell I you. Do. I Let do. me know where I'm going to And I confess, I confess, the first wine you tried was like 10 bucks. The second wine that's coming around now, right now, is like a $40-$50 bottle of wine. It's not every day that you try stuff like this, okay? Right. right. But at the same time, the fact that a bunch of snooty people are willing to drop a lot of money to feel important does not invalidate the laws of supply and demand. The reality is that if something is commanding a higher price, it's because more people want it. They think it's better and they think it's worth it. That's pretty interesting. All I know is the people that leave here tonight can walk a few blocks away from here and with that same $50 for that one bottle, they will get five, six, seven six-packs of world-class beer, the best beer they can buy. And that's a gorgeous thing. Well, well, first off, I'd like to have a bit of applause for my wine sponsor who gave me a $40 bottle of wine to put up against... I'll, I'll clap for well, that. I mean, really, I'll clap that, for that. That took a lot of headshot. Was that? that was Bambi Vintners. And I gotta tell you, for a wine company to see the value of going head-to-head -head competitively with beer, that takes a lot of, a lot of cojones, you know? In any case, you will notice though that the first and the last wine that I chose are very, very, very affordable. As a matter of fact, Sam, many of your beers approach the cost per serving of these wines. Right, but they're like seven times better. No, I can't. So, uh, what is the retail? What is the retail value? About ten on the rosé. As I said, nearly forty on the cum laude. And this wine. Bucks. It's right. about, it depends on the retailer, it could be anywhere from like 13 to $18. Right, 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 right. Okay. But there's a lot of servings in that bottle, Sam. If that was a beer bottle, you'd only get two glasses out of it, right? I suppose. For wine, you get six. By the pint, right, right, right. And how strong is that? Well, about 11% alcohol, and then back down to eight. That's cute, that's cute. Okay. That's a cute, that. that's a cute alcohol percentage. Thank you. Because uh, the last beer we're going to have is stronger than any of those fucking ones, okay? Yeah, that's good. Oh, 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 I forgot to tell you about the wine that you've got in front of you. This is what we call a Super Tuscan, meaning that it is a wine from Italy, from Tuscany, from a famous region that makes Chianti and Brunello di Montalcino. But they have recently started making more modern wines and planting grapes that are not native to Italy. So this is a blend of the Chianti and Brunello grape Sangiovese along with Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and Syrah, aged 14 months in French oak barrels, and then aged another bottles before it got to you. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. A nice mouthful, huh? It's nice. It's really nice. And you hear all that, and it sounds like, whoa, shit's going on all over the place. Blah, 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 blah. But everything she said still just had to do with grapes. One ingredient. One ingredient. Okay? <laughs> 
How many views do we have again? Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, did everybody get their second wine and their second beer? Has everybody gotten the wine cool. on the second? Okay. So we're ready to go now. This time I'll let you take. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, here's the vote. Uh, did you guys raise your hands if you preferred the pairing of the beer and the cheese? Okay. Raise your hands if you prefer the pairing of the wine and the cheese. That's pretty cool. About half. Oh my yeah. goodness. Oh my God. She's such a half I'm old kind of girl. On you, Sam. She's a half I'm old kind of girl. Because that was you. like a third. That wasn't a half. That was a third. A third of the people have bad taste. <laughs> oh, you know what I want to do for this? While this is coming out, I want to invite Sean up. Because uh, uh, the beer industry, as you go around this room, if you went to the Aspen. Lottie da snobby food, food and wine, food and food wine, wine you see these giant companies, these giant vineyards, totally unapproachable, totally impersonal, giant vineyards doing their thing. If you come to the GABF, and, and if you went to those things, you'd see a salesperson, our salespeople are here, they're doing an amazing job, but you wouldn't see the brewer, you wouldn't see the owner of the company. Tonight, we have the owner of the company that made the chocolate you're about to have. And there's just so much overlap between the grassroots marketing efforts of the small breweries and what Sean is doing. So Sean, come up and talk a little bit about your chocolate. Um, well, this is a real honor. I, uh, the dark chocolate that you're tasting has nothing in it but the cocoa beans and pure cane sugar. And I hope that you like the chocolate, but the thing that I want you all to know is why we're here. My wife, who's over there, Karen, my wife and I, we love dark beer, and so we wanted to come to this festival and be a part of it as a chocolate factory. Now, and this isn't a commercial for Sam, but I was a criminal defense lawyer for 20 years. No, but when I was thinking about how to start my business, I read Sam's book, and it was very inspiring to me, and I don't know what I would have done without it, because I dog-eared pages, I highlighted pages. Every employee at my chocolate factory has to read his book, but the thing about this chocolate is, I think it's very similar with the beer industry. The idea for our company is to have relationships. We have relationships with the farmers who grow these beans so that we can profit share with them, so we can share with them, so we can get to know them. That's what our company is all about. Oh yeah, okay, this chocolate that you're tasting is actually quite famous. It comes from the Soconusco region of southern Mexico. That was probably the most famous growing region for cocoa beans in the world. The Aztecs took over that region of Mexico only for the cocoa beans. They literally had a war over these beans. When the Spaniards conquered Mexico, these beans fell out of favor because the farmers died. And, and so wait a second, it's the region that made those grains real? Beans really good, right? Right. Right. Okay, tell Sam about that sometime. Yeah. However, the South American 
market began to take over. And soon these beans were not available on the world market. And so what I did is I met an anthropologist from Southern California. She introduced me to the farmers of this region. I went down with there. I went down there, I met with them, and she tells us that we're the first chocolate makers in the world outside of Mexico to make chocolate with these beans, the chocolate that you're tasting tonight. So wow. we're proud of that. Cool. And it's here for the hey, chocolate. Where where did I learn how important it was to be the first at something? Right here. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate That's okay, you, you just don't know me yet. Right. <laughs> you know, we got we got George Bush taking over countries because of oil. Centuries ago, we had Aztecs fighting over the lands that grew good chocolate. What the hell is the, the correlation? Clearly, there? we don't have our priorities straight. Thank you, Sean. So uh, our last pairing is, I think, in front of everyone. What else do we have to say? What you else need to talk about your beer, Sam, the Worldwide, and then I'll tell them about the wine. Uh, so Worldwide is a, a, a 18%. It's the world's strongest dark beer. And I think this version we serve tonight is three years old and 20% alcohol. Um, my good friend Jim Cook from Sam Adams, good friend of mine, we had the world's record of the strongest beer for like three weeks. And it was weird. Hardly anybody wrote about it. It was kind of weird. But then I found out the reason nobody really wrote about us breaking the record is because Boston Beer blanketed every media outlet with faxes saying that within weeks they were going to come out with a millennium, which uh, became the strongest. And so Jim emailed me, or no, he called me, and he's like, awesome job brewing a strong beer. Tell you what, I will gladly trade you a bottle of my beer for a case of yours. I was like, that sucks, that deal. That sucks. But uh, I was like, I want a six-pack for, for a bottle. And so I got that, and then my dad bought a bottle of his beer, too, and sent it to me. And I sold the second bottle I got on eBay of his beer for a lot of money. And then I went to an auction at, at a brewery in the Poconos, and I bought a 100-barrel uh, horizontal dairy tank. So... Long story short, I'd like to thank Boston Beer Company for helping to fuel our growth. <laughs> I love Jim, but that was kind of cool. Did I talk about the beer? I don't think he... And okay. that beer speaks for itself. The wine, the wine expert said she doesn't think I need to talk about the beer. It speaks for itself. I That's might have, nice. I might have an ulterior motive, Sam. Um, in any case, I might need to talk about the wine a little bit. And yeah, i got to tell you, this is a really un... In wine, chances are you've never had a red sparkling wine, let alone a red sparkling dessert wine. This stuff is amazing. It is essentially a picture in time halfway through fermentation. They stop the fermentation before all of the natural grape sugars convert into alcohol while it's still fresh and then so it's pack like it into bottle, bottles. It's like bottle condition. Essentially, yes. That's cool. But what's this is that it retains the of the ripe grapes in an amazing way. What you get here is a flavor that is not just fruity, but also floral and spicy. It tastes like strawberries and raspberries stewed down with black pepper and roses. It is amazingly good. 
but it takes a very different approach to matching with the chocolate. The Worldwide Stout tries to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the monstrous amount of cocoa butter and flavor that you've got going in that dark chocolate, whereas this decides to try and cut across it to be a light counterpoint, to be a contrast rather than a compliment. And I have yet to find the chocolate lover who didn't fall in love with this stuff. I mean, I know a few people who've installed ice buckets in their bedrooms just you because of this wine. Yeah, seriously. But it is great fun stuff. And again, we had a lovely company see fit to give us a case of this stuff just for you. So I hope you guys are enjoying it. Is it hard to find? Can, can you As find a it? matter of fact, it used to be. But about a year ago, they started bringing more and more of it in because the American market went bananas for it. And now yeah. you can get it in almost every state. Yeah. Yeah, those people are stupid. We hope that you guys have been having fun. And, and I know that the theme of our event here was like boy versus girl, beer versus wine, and all of that. But I to see that what we're really doing here is trying to reach out across the divide. I don't think that beer and wine are as different as most people think. The reality is that from somebody on the inside of the bedroom, the thing that's different, the thing that's separate, the thing that is a completely different animal from what we do here and from what I do is spirits. Spirits are a completely different thing, dude. When you separate the nutrition and the food value from the alcohol, you take firm alcohol out of context I hate and make that it shit. harder to digest. I hate that shit. And I own a distillery. I, I know. Oh. In any case, I would love to see more craft brewers and more craft beer drinkers start getting into wine. But I also recognize that there are wine drinkers out there that really need to start tasting some great beer. And I really would like to see our world get a little closer together. So here's to you guys. Cheers, guys. You're a mess. I, I do like his beer, though, I gotta say. Although this one's a little strong for me, but hey. So, so I, think, I think we're kind of done with the tasting, but it there looks are like the wine votes. got to the back of the room. We need to take a vote. Oh, yeah, we still have yep. third course. Mm -hmm. Okay, so of the people who've tried both so far, how many people prefer the worldwide stout with the chocolate? Solid majority, Sam. And how about the wine with the chocolate? Oh, we see some happy people out there who enjoyed their wine. Good, I'm so pleased. We have a 12-step program for you guys. And, and I do have to commend those of you throughout today's seminar who have raised your hand for wine. I commend you for your bravery because yes. I do realize you have to go back out there into this crazy, crazy yeah, it's a event. Zoo. It's a After zoo. having voted for wine, I don't know how safe you are getting to your car, and I, I do thank you for your honesty. So, all right, so is there, is there any uh, questions? You had an amazing wine expert in the room. If you got any questions on wine and why it's inferior, ask them now. Ask them now. But uh, seriously, if you guys have any questions, as I said, she knows as much about beer as, as she does about wine. You got a question back there? Oh, what I said was, uh, what was this shit? But then they handed me the, the, uh, uh, the roast. Yes, yes. So yes. It's not bad at all. Worldwide well, now rules. He's making some good points. He's okay, making some okay. good points. Now, we can... 
in any case, thank you guys so much for coming out. We really hope you enjoyed our comparison. If you want to talk to Sam, the rock star, or ask me any questions, feel free. But we should probably take off the silly mic right about now. I was at Redstone Meter Meadery earlier today. Uh-huh. And I had a um, one of those sparkling wines that tasted similar to the, uh, the dessert wine we had. And I'm curious what your opinion is of mead versus wine. We'll leave the whole beer thing out of it for right now. But mead versus wine, what are your, some of your thoughts? Mead has, it's like occupying a strange hybrid land halfway between beer and wine because the, the nature of the flavors do seem to have more fruit kind of synergy. But it is something where humans control the ingredients. So the ratio of sugar to water, for example, is something that's within a person's control, which isn't true for wine. But in terms of pairing and matching, I do think that most beads, or certainly the ones that are made naturally without a lot of intervention or preservatives, do tend to have follow the patterns of wine pairing more so than they do with beers. Or if they do with beers, more with the lambicky stuff. Thank you. You're welcome. The last time we talked, it was at the Brewing Up a Business book uh, tour you were on. Okay. And you had scaled back the worldwide stout from 20 to 18% because you thought it made a better product. Tonight you're serving the 20% worldwide. I was curious. We had an old version of it tonight. Did you on it? Did it improve? Or I think so. It was very port-like. And uh, we just had different versions of it. We wanted to feature a bunch of older beers in our booth tonight. Everything we did was between 10 and 20% alcohol. So the worldwide we served was... Three years old. It was the first to go, wasn't it, Alan? Yeah, that was the first one to go. All right. I was just curious what your opinion was on an older 20% versus a new 18% because you just got it back because you like well, better fresh 18 23% was the strongest we ever made it, and that one, in my mind, wasn't the best. Okay. The 18 to 20 was the best. The 23 was like fire water. Okay. And so... It hasn't aged over the long... Yeah, I haven't tried. I haven't tried super old twenty three, but that was tasting good. Yeah. All right, that's all I have for you. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for listening to this portion of the Craft Beer Radio Great American Beer Festival coverage. To find more coverage or to subscribe to our podcast, go to craftbeerradio.com. Craft Beer Radio is released under the Creative Commons license.